As some of you may know, in the run-up to Christmas, we were in a series called Finding God in Unexpected Places, because in many ways that's the story of Christmas. God surprises Earth with heaven coming here on Christmas Day. Uh, and as we as we took time through the Advent season to count down to Christmas, we were visiting these various unexpected places. Now, since Christmas, we've uh, taken that series, uh, but we've taken it back onto the blog because I've, I just missed writing. And so we've uh, d done, I think, three or four um, more unexpected places where we can find God. And today, I'm really going to finish that devotional series um, it's the last time we hear about Jesus as a child before he enters uh, adult life and, and, and public ministry. And the strange thing is, we're going to kind of go back to the start today, because in visiting the final one uh, of these early stories about Jesus's uh, birth and, and childhood, uh, we actually need to ask a rather fundamental question. And that question is, if, if we need to find God then how come we've lost God? What are those things that um, distract us from God's presence, uh, God's promise, God's peace, God's power, God's provision for our lives? How do we lose sight of those things? How do we lose sight of Jesus? So we're going to read together from Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, starting reading at verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem, according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favour with God and men. To all the parents joining us today, for anyone who's had that heart-stopping, breath-stealing moment, when you look around to see where you think your child or your kids are, and they're not there, you will identify with the horror 
of this moment. We've lost our child. In this story, things go from bad to worse. They get very bad before they get better. So Mary and Joseph have been in Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Uh, For the Jews, this was a huge festival when the Passover lamb uh, is sacrificed on behalf of the people. Uh, The population of Jerusalem swells to something like four or five times its normal size. Uh, Jews and God-fearing people from all over the world come to witness this unique celebration. Uh, There's eating, there's meeting, there's singing, there's dancing, there's weeping, there's teaching, there's sacrifice, there's worship. Uh, For Jesus, this is the first time he's able to go. Uh, As a 12-year-old boy, he's suddenly allowed access uh, to this city, to this festival, uh, to its colour, to its texture, to its flavour, to its noise, to its life. Uh, It must have been an incredible place to be, an incredible place for any 12-year-old to be. And of course, for Jesus, this is uniquely special. Uh, This is, as it is for any of us who, through Jesus, have been adopted into God's family, his Father's house. And this moment, this sacrifice, of course, carries in it for Jesus a symbol, uh, a, a, a trigger, a reminder of his purpose. One day, I will give my life. And so just like this lamb, I must be perfect and unblemished and unspoiled and unstained. Uh, For Jesus, this is such a big moment. And then as his parents are packing up, talking with friends and family and the huge group that they'll be journeying back to Nazareth with, Jesus somehow lingers. Something about the atmosphere means Jesus can't leave yet. He's held there in that moment of awe and wonder and he gets talking to a group of teachers. They're asking each other questions as was their style as as rabbis and Jesus as a child, even as an infant, fits right in, even sorry as a teenager, as a young person, fits right in. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now in Jewish culture back in the day, the men used to travel together at the head of the group and sort of forge ahead. Uh, They were the sort of the pioneers, the protectors uh, of the group, the alpha males, and the women would travel together uh, and do all the less meaningful, obvious, important stuff like providing food uh, and, you know, keeping everything clean. And so Joseph was with one group, Mary was another, with another, uh, and thinking he was in their company somewhere, if not with the other, then with other boys his age or other family or other friends, they journey on for a day. And then comes that moment when they're setting up for the night and they realise, we've lost Jesus. For Mary and Joseph... We've lost our child. We've lost the one whom the the fate of God's rescue mission, the whole kingdom, is on his shoulders. And we've lost him. I tell this story today not just because it happened, but because it happens. We in our lives 
can so easily lose sight of Jesus. Not that he's a child that needs our protecting, but that he is our king who needs to be followed, our friend who needs to be trusted, our ever-present help in time of need. And yet so often our eyes are not on him and we lose sight of Jesus in our lives. If you think, well, it could never happen to a person like you or it could never happen to a church like ours, listen to these words that Jesus from heaven dictates to his best friend John to be sent to the church in Ephesus of all places. We've, we've got the letter of Ephesians, which is full of hope and joy and praise. But these words are the words that Jesus needs them to hear. He says, I know your deeds. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for, for my name, and you've not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. That passion, Jesus said, the, the first beat inside your chest, that love, that first love that you had for me, you've forsaken it. You've, you've lost it. He goes on to say, verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. You can hear, can't you, the ache in Jesus's voice is his longing to be close to the church. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent, which means to turn around. It's not primarily a feeling word in the Greek. It's not primarily emotion. It's a decision. It's a thinking word. Repent. Change your mind. Do a 180 and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, which is the church, from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus very clearly defines reality for them, but not just to beat them down, not just to crush them with condemnation, but to call them, to invite them, to compel them. Whoever has ears to hear, come, come and eat, come and be, come and love, come and live. But before they can do that, there needs to be a turning around, a repenting of this. You have forsaken your first love. I wonder today if those are words that I need to hear, that you need to hear, that we need to hear. It's amazing, isn't it, that Mary and Joseph managed to go a whole day's journey before they realise how far They've journeyed without Jesus. Remember, consider how far you have fallen. And maybe today you and I can remember a time when we were in a different place in God, when our heart was in a different place before him, when our life was in a different place before him. So today my question is, what kind of things uh, can so often prevent us keeping our eyes on Jesus and how do we get back 
to that place today. The first thing I want us to notice from this passage is that it begins with a preoccupation with something. For Mary and Joseph, of course, in their imagination, Jesus was there. That's how they went a whole day's journey. They just imagined he was with the other one uh, or with someone else, but certainly among them somewhere, certainly safe. And the reason they didn't stop to check was that they were so preoccupied. Uh, there was a camp to be packed away. Uh, there was food to be prepared. There was uh, miles to be walked. There was a journey to take. And they were doing it with others who were all doing the same thing and helping each other and chatting to each other along the way. They lost sight of Jesus because they were preoccupied. That's the first of the three signs I want us to look at today. The first sign that I've lost sight of Jesus is that I'm preoccupied. Now, what's interesting is that they weren't preoccupied doing something awful or sinful or bad. They were preoccupied by the fact that they'd been to the temple. They'd been to God's house uh, for God's festival at God's design. They were doing God's stuff. And yet they'd lost God in their midst. There's a really powerful devotional book by a guy called Oswald Chambers. Now, some of you know, and I'm about to quote the title of this book with me, it's called My Utmost for His Highest. Uh, heartily recommended to anybody. It's a stunning, stunning book. Uh, a man of such deep hunger for God and such deep humility. And there's a passage that I remember reading while I was still in college that's had a big, deep impact for me. I had to do some work to find it, but I'd love to share it with you now. It's a longer passage, but it, it, it bears reading and reflecting on. Beware of any work for God that causes or allows you to avoid concentrating on him. A great number of Christian workers worship their work. The only concern of Christian workers should be their concentration on God. He goes on to talk about how when we don't concentrate on God, the burden's on us. And so there's stress and strain and worry and discord and disunity. And why aren't they doing this? And why aren't they doing that? And why have I got to do all this? And all those kind of thoughts arise. And it's because our awareness, our concentration is not on God. But when our concentration is on God, we're not worshipping the work, we're worshipping God. Uh, all of that purpose, all of our reason for doing it, and the responsibility for it doesn't lie on us. It's focused on God. It's the only way to, to, to work for God, is to realise I'm not just working for him, I'm working with him. The Bible actually calls us co-workers with Christ. We are partnering with Christ. Now, in the bargain, in the relationship, he's the much bigger partner, don't get me wrong. But we're never just called to work for him. We're called to work with him. Now, maybe for some of us today, it's easier to understand it this way. We're not just called to live for him. We are called to that. But we're called to to live with him. Did I say that right? We're not just called to live for him. We're also called to live with him. 
And that emphasis is entirely different because what I imagine that might look like in any given day might be very different to what he imagines it's going to look like. Uh, Oswald Chambers goes on to say, uh, there is no longer any responsibility on you for the work. The only responsibility you have is to stay in living, constant touch with God and to see that you allow nothing to hinder your cooperation with him. I'm going to read those words again. The only responsibility you have is to stay in living, constant touch with God and to see that you allow nothing to hinder your cooperation with him. Wow. I remember years ago, really good friend of mine, uh, incredible evangelist called uh, Chris Duffett, who works, founded and works with the Light Project. Uh, for a year, he was president of the Baptist Union of Great Britain. And he was down in Cardiff doing some stuff with us, some lectures at the Baptist College, and so he was staying with us. Uh, we'd been out busy, go various places, he'd been speaking, we'd been working. He came back and sort of collapsed on the, the mattress on the floor, bless him, which was the only place we had for him to stay. And then he got up the next day and he was speaking at the Baptist College to ministers and church leaders. And he started by saying the night before he'd gone to bed and he'd prayed and said, God, I'm a bit gutted because I seem to have spent a lot of time talking about you and comparatively little time talking to you. And immediately I was, I was blown away and completely humbled by that. How much time, I'd love to be able to calculate it, how much time do you and I spend talking about God? I mean, that's gonna be a relatively small part of what we talk about in our lives versus how much time we spend talking to God. Sometimes the, the greatest temptation uh, is not to do something really bad, but to do something really good for the wrong reasons, or to do something good the wrong way when God is there. And we just lose sight of Jesus. The only responsibility you have, you and I, is to stay in living, constant touch with God and to allow nothing to, cooperate, to, to hinder our cooperation with him. If we just took that quote and put it up somewhere, and maybe that's a key for us today, in all the things that we need to do in the course of our lives, uh, to help avoid us becoming preoccupied with good things and turning good things in, into God things and worshipping them rather than worshipping God, is to put these reminders around. Uh, I've got two images saved on my phone. One is the sign-in screen and one is the backdrop. And every time I look at them, they remind me of something that God has been speaking into my life. Uh, think how many times you look at your phone. What if there was a reminder there? Uh, or maybe for you, it's not the phone. Maybe it's the fridge. You need to stick something on the fridge or put something on your computer at work and just remind you, prompt you. Uh, you are not alone. God is with you and wanting to do this with you today. That's his great heart. You could hear it, couldn't you, in his letter to Ephesians. Return and do the things you did at first. What are those things that first love took you to do? What are those places, what are those passions that you did in first love that you need to do again to stop us becoming preoccupied? Another sign 
that we've lost sight of Jesus is presumption. We don't know, of course, but we're not told any different, so we can presume that this festival was as engaging and enlightening and exciting as any other year. And so it's time to return home. And we read these words, thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Presumption. Not checking he was in their company, but thinking he was in their company. One clear way that I can lose sight of Jesus is to presume I know where he is, to presume I know where he's going, to presume I know what he wants. There's an American politician, uh, now retired, uh, who was once asked how in this big key debate that was going on between the Republicans and the Democrats uh, over in America, I'm not going to get into that argument today, he could, as a Christian, fall on one side of the argument. Now, I'm not going to go into now what that argument was, it's not important, but what's important are these words. David Price, I believe we must seek God's will never presuming to identify it with our own program and power. I believe we need to seek God's will, not to presume God's will. As Christians, we can get into deep and dangerous and sometimes dark waters, presuming to know where Jesus is, where he's going and what he's doing. And we lose sight of him thinking he is in our company. Sometimes you can see it, can't you, in, in people. We presume so often on God's word. We read it, but we're not really reading it. We know what it says, and the words just wash over our minds, and we close the book, and it's gone. Or in our relationship with God, we, we presume on his grace. And we can treat it so glibly, so casually, and we can spend it so cheaply when the cost of my forgiveness, my restoration, my healing is Jesus's blood. Sometimes we can presume upon God's people, God's church. It's really interesting to me in this passage that you see how important the temple becomes for Jesus. Uh, later in the Gospels, we read that Jesus on the Sabbath day was in the synagogue, as was his custom. He made it a regular rhythm. Uh, he was serious about God, so he was serious about God's people. Uh, and I'm not talking about religion. Please hear me now. I'm not talking about rituals and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about law and duty. But what I have seen in people's lives, as I've been a pastor now over 20 years, is that those people who are serious about Jesus get serious about Jesus' people. Now, those people who love Jesus love his bride. That doesn't mean you love everything that the church has stood for over the years or that you love everything that the church does, but I'm talking about that relationship. You know, if I had a friend who got on really well with me but couldn't stand my wife, that would be a problem in our relationship, right? And, 
I, I understand that sometimes the church doesn't always represent Jesus well. I understand some people can feel quite broken and battered and bruised and beaten down uh, by the church. And I would be the first to say that if that's been your experience, I am sorry. I'm really sorry that you've been through that. I want to pray for your healing because God tells us that those who are being saved, he adds to the church. God's people. Sometimes we, we presume upon it. We take this gift of God's family for granted. We treat it as a given and not a precious gift. The Bible tells us Jesus died for his bride. Jesus died for the church. It's not something to be presumed upon. But in this passage, they presume that Jesus is with them. I wonder how many things in my life, uh, in our life, as a church together, corporately as well as individually, we just keep doing because we've always done them. And we just presume that God's blessing is still on them. I wonder how many times we've launched into a project and our prayer has been, uh, not God, what's your plan? God, what do you want us to do? But God, please will you bless our plans? Please will you bless what we're about to do? And we just presume that we're doing God's will. One of the gifts that was hidden within the pain of the lockdowns that we went through was the opportunity. And in some ways, I think we've done that. In other ways, I think there are still deeper questions to be asked. We've had an opportunity to, to take it all apart and look at why we do what we do and what we should be doing. Because it's so easy to presume that we're doing God's will. Uh, David Price's words here, don't identify it with your own program or power. It's dangerous to do that. It's an easy way to lose sight of Jesus. So maybe for each and every one of us today, it'd be really wise before we ask God to help us with what we are doing, to pause and to ask God, is, is this what we should be doing? Is this where you're at work? And is this somewhere where I can join you today? And then thirdly and finally, another sign that we've lost sight of Jesus is prejudice. After three days of desperately, frantically, painfully searching back uh, the streets of Jerusalem, retracing their steps, talking to people they've stayed with, talking to strangers, they eventually decide to go to the temple. Now, I've got no idea if they thought he might be there, or if after three days of searching, they were going there to offer prayers or repentance for their action. I got no idea. But either way, they were astonished to see Jesus there, to see him among that company, to see him holding his own with the teachers of the law, who were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Uh, this is an incredible moment when they go running over to him and then Mary, in her desperate sense, has all kinds of relief and confusion and anger and love pulsing through her veins at this moment, it says, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Can you hear within Jesus' question, how many times did Jesus answer a question with a question? 
She asks a why and Jesus replies with a why. And in it, you can hear just a faint trace of hurt, a faint trace of confusion. He says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Jesus says, there's only one place I'm going to be. Not on the market, or it's not on the beaches, or it's not in the streets, it's not in the shops, it's it's in my father's house. A phrase that can both mean a house, but of course, in Jewish culture, where most boys, certainly the oldest boy, as Jesus was, of course, um, would inherit the father's business, and most of the time that was based at home, the father's house and the father's business were one and the same thing. And so saying, didn't you know, I'd have to be in my father's house is another way of saying, I had to be about my father's business. But you can hear in his question, didn't you know I'd have to be in my father's house? And for some reason, there was a sense of prejudice. For three days, they'd looked in every other place, bar the biggest building on the horizon a building that dominated the skyline and dominated their thinking and their theology. But surely a child wouldn't want to be sat with old men. Surely a, a youngster wouldn't be able to talk to teachers of the law. Surely a child wouldn't want to be in the temple. Jesus says, why, why were you looking for me? Where, where else would I be? I, I had to be here. Sometimes finding Jesus in unexpected places means letting go of some of our prejudices. And sadly, as human beings, we're, we're full of them. We're full of a conflict of, of, of bias and preferences and, and choices and we need to get over that if we're going to be serious about finding Jesus, even in unexpected places. Surely Jesus is not going to be working there. Surely Jesus isn't going to speak through them. Surely Jesus can't speak in, in that way. Surely I can't be healed by them. Surely I can't grow there. You've got to let that prejudice go. So often Jesus is wanting us to grow by taking us out of where we're comfortable and out of where we're safe and out of what we know and placing all of that in a new environment so that we can know his hope holds there, his light shines there, his truth is true there. And there's real growth in that, in that willingness to follow Jesus. But sometimes that will mean letting go of our prejudices. So often Jesus did this to me with the disciples. I love the story of Jesus being sat at the well with a Samaritan woman. And there's a little detail that it's easy to miss right at the start where Jesus is alone at this well, ready for the Samaritan woman and ready for the encounter because Jesus has sent the disciples into the Samaritan village to buy food. So these good Jewish men are now in a Samaritan village buying food. Now, they don't usually even share plates, but they're willing to buy food. And in order to do that, there's got to be a moment of 
interaction, a moment of conversation. Um, the disciples are actually investing in Samaritan businesses and Samaritan families. And I wonder if that prepared them for what was about to happen. But the faith that was about to come alive in this Samaritan woman and the, the faith of the village then come out to meet Jesus. And the, the days, I think it's three days that Jesus spends there, at the end of which they say, well, we don't just believe because of the Samaritan woman's story. We now believe because we've seen it for ourselves. And to prepare the way for that, Jesus wants to send the disciples in to break down their prejudices. This isn't the Samaritans. These are people with names and families and hopes and dreams and needs and fears, just like you. Surely Jesus is not going to work among these theological hybrids, these theological half-breeds. Yes, he is. Because Jesus is determined to be found in unexpected places. Whether it's something you believe about yourself or something you believe about another person or another place or a group of people, we need to let go of our prejudice. It occurs to me this word repent that we were thinking about earlier means a, a change, a change of mind, a change of life, a change of heart. It's one of the first words out of Jesus's mouth. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So to follow Jesus is to, to change, to be willing to change. I worry sometimes that for those of us from a tribe that I grew up in, uh, a tribe that I'm very familiar with, I can't comment on other people's expressions or experiences of following Jesus, but for many of us, there was a willingness to change and that sort of stopped in a certain place. We know what the Bible says. It doesn't need to speak to us anymore. We just need to be reminded of its message. And there's been a point at which we stopped following Jesus. That willingness to change our hearts, our lives, our minds, led us to a certain point, but no further. That's why Jesus calls Peter again, isn't it? Right at the end of the gospel, there's like an echo, a bookend, right back to the uh, one of the first opening chapters Will you, Peter, follow me? Last week we were thinking of the call of Peter. And Sean was reminding us of this question. Are you willing to go again? Are you willing to grow again? Are you willing to change again? Sometimes we lose sight of Jesus because our eyes are full of prejudice. So let's just pause to pray together today. I don't know what God has been speaking to you out of this story or out of this service together today, but just sit with these three things and hear the call of Jesus. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And so may you be free of the preoccupations that challenge your time and your capacity for Jesus. May you let go of the presumption and follow him with passion. And may you be free of prejudice to love to embrace, to go 
and to serve in Jesus' name. And may you find Jesus today in unexpected places.